as we look at lead generation strategies and how do we develop our brand and position ourselves, it's very, very important to recognize that we need to be consistent about producing content in a multi-channel medium, right? Not just dominating one specific medium. Welcome to the Get Clear with Crystal Ware podcast, the place where we get clear on our goals, own our worth, and learn to be the CEOs of our own lives. I'm your host, Crystal Ware, lawyer and former Fortune 500 corporate leader who found the confidence to say goodbye to a lucrative career and start my own business. Now I'm opening up the playbook and sharing everything I've learned to get you there faster. It may not be easy, but it will always be worth it because you are made for more. So put on your big girl pants, jump on board, and let's reach for the stars. Are you ready to get clear? Welcome, welcome, welcome everyone back here to the place where we get clear on our goals, own our worth, and learn to be the CEOs of our own life. And today we have Jeremy Jensen, who is the founder and CEO of Encore Search Partners, a 40-person executive search firm here in Houston, Texas. He is a father of three and a subject matter expert on entrepreneurial operating system and prides himself on building Houston's largest privately held search firm on the back of his seven core values, which are excellence, resilience, gratitude, professionalism, coachable, meticulous, and competitive. In his free time, Jeremy enjoys spending time with his family and friends and is an extremely active board member of the Entrepreneurs Organization which is a global co-op of over 16,000 entrepreneurs worldwide. They get together and they do mini meetings, social events, and host lunch and learn and other opportunities. So if you're interested in that, you can Google it, Entrepreneurs Organization. I had was so excited to talk about Jer- with Jeremy about all the things about creating a business from the ground up, what it takes to do that, the resiliency, the hard work, the effort, finding the right people, finding the right team, how you go from zero to 2 million and then from 2 million to 10 million in revenue. What makes a great leader? What investments you might be looking for how LinkedIn is still relevant in so many ways and how you can use LinkedIn to build your business personal or otherwise. So let's get in. I think you're going to really love all that we had to talk about. It was such a deep dive, so many amazing nuggets to take away, so many quotable moments. So be sure to stay till the end because Jeremy has a lot to share with all of us and he was a very generous with his time. So welcome, Jeremy. Can't wait. We are going to dive right in. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for getting together finally. We have had this on the books and talked about this for about six weeks. And I just know you are leading the way here in Houston in entrepreneurship and growth and development for yourself, for your company, and for all the people. And this is just such a good story that I want to bring to our audience, showing people what is possible when you think outside the box, you don't restrict yourself and how you can live the life that you always dreamed. So thank you so much for being a guest on Get Clear with Crystal Ware today. Well, thank you for having me. And I apologize. She's saying that we've been trying to get together for six weeks. We had uh, one meeting on the books and I had to cancel it same day because business takes priority sometimes, right? So this is the fun part of my day. So let's have fun. 
Absolutely. And it's right. And it's right. That's right. Before we jumped into the podcast today, we were talking about that, how we both had last minute calls. Uh, As many of you know, I have a traditional business in addition to the podcast and we both had last minute calls and things going. And sometimes you just got to squeeze it in when you, you you don't want to let the fish get away, right? Yeah, exactly. And the way that I think we both see it is, hey, the other person's a business owner. They'll understand if I'm five minutes late, right? So well, I am so glad. Honestly, I, I want to record this. I want I want to write <laughs> down the minute that this said so I can share it with my husband because yeah. we debate on this all the time about the nuance of being a few minutes late. Yeah. And especially when you also have kids but you're a business owner. There are things that come up. And while I always strive to be on time and strive to keep my calendar, it's just not always possible. You know, and I think the easiest way to get grace is just over communicate. Yep. Hey, this is what happened. And and it was my intention to be here on time. And I'm grateful and happy that I'm here now. But business happens, right? So it's good. So let's talk about get clear. What is what? Why was get clear? created? And are we supposed to get clear with ourselves, get clear with our clients, get clear with our audience? Just give me some backstory so I know how clear to get with you. Well, we can get clear on anything and everything, (laughs) but I really created this podcast because I wanted to speak to the woman that I once was, knowing that I was made for more, that there was a deeper calling inside of me, and that while I was very successful and had a lucrative six-figure career, I was doing all the things that I wanted to do, and I really did love my job and my career, I knew that there was more out there. Mm -hmm. At some point in life, you need to see the example and a case study of what you're thinking that you want to do to know that it is possible. And that's why I wanted to create this podcast so that I can one, share some motivational tips, practical tips for people, but also bring on other entrepreneurs, other business owners, other people that have pivoted in their career, done something outside the box, all different shapes and sizes and looks of a career so that people can really understand what is possible for them too. And that's why I really wanted to have you on because your story is so amazing. And I just think it is a shining example of what people could do. Um, So that's, that's really in a nutshell why I wanted to have the podcast and why I bring on entrepreneurs and business people like you. Excellent. So you shared one thing that really resonated with me. And I, it's basically you wanted the the example to show that something was possible, right? And I just I'll I'll bring it back to like whenever I was a little kid, growing up in a leaf with a single mom who had me at sixteen years old and a little brother, right, who's seven years younger. He's actually our operations manager. Um, but I remember as a little kid thinking, "Wow, a hundred thousand dollars a year." Right. If I just made a hundred thousand dollars a year, I'd be set. I'd be rich. Right. If if I lived in that house right there that cost three hundred thousand dollars, oh my gosh, we're rich. Right. And so we were we 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 kind of limited ourselves to what we thought the apex of success was because those were the only scenarios that were in our peripheral vision, right? And and when I moved into the $300,000 house and became friends with the people that lived in the $600,000 house, right, it kind of elevated the vision and the goal and what I thought was achievable, you know? And I think one of the challenges that that creates is when are you ever happy, 
right? You know, you live in a $2 million house today and you wonder, oh, if, we, if we just had that beach house, if we just had that mountain house, right? Um, and so I do want to, to, to at least make the listeners aware that, you know, if you constantly set new goals, right, and you achieve them, you need to give yourself a little pat on the back, right, and and stop and smell the roses uh, before you just create that bigger goal, right? And I think that's one of the traps that I've recently fallen into, is that by society standards, I've I'm very successful, but because of I'm only a product of the sum of the ten people that I hang around with, guess what? Those 10 people are more successful than me whenever it comes to entrepreneurship and wealth building. And so I need to make sure that I stay humbled a little bit and, and, and stay grateful for what I've got. Yes. And and there's so many points in there that I resonate with and where to even start. <laughs> I would say first and foremost, that is such a good point, Jeremy. And one of the things that I like to talk to women about or just people in general and what I've historically talked to in my corporate life as a mentor um, and with the people reporting to me is when we get clear, the starting point, the nexus, the genesis, you know, where we want to begin is to ask ourselves, what is our goal? Mm-hmm. We need to also revisit that because like you indicated, that can shift, that can change. But at the end of the day, we need a goal, a vision for our life that's not necessarily tied to monetary uh, or, you know, material goods. Mm -hmm. And when we understand that, then we can say, am I fulfilled now? Am, do I feel successful? Mm -hmm. Until I worked through that process, I was always chasing. At one point, when I just started the business and I wanted to know where I was going, why am I doing this? My husband is super successful. Um, what is it about growth and change and reaching to the next pinnacle that really moved me? And what it came down to was that I wanted to have enough money and material you know, capabilities that I could share with all of my family and that I could give as much as I wanted to give to Mm -hmm. charities, to churches, to things of that nature. Um, Because like you, I'm from a very working class background. Mm -hmm. I I really thought the two-story house, if somebody had a (laughs) two-story house, they must be rich. And as I know now, you could have a two-story house that is only like 1,600 square feet. Have you been inside the loop? (laughs) Everything's four stories now. Yes, yes. I I mean, I would have really thought, these people are millionaires. These people are so rich because where you come from, I mean, I had a thousand square foot house with one bathroom, but I had a friend with a bigger house who loved my home and never wanted Mm. us to sell it because it was such a happy home. So we, you know, all of that is true. And the, the point that I like to make is that we just have to have some grounding point or other ways we are, like you said, always chasing. Mm. We can always continue to shoot for the stars. We can always look to grow, but as long as it's not going to hold us back in our 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 happiness and our fulfillment, that's where I don't like people to get on that track of just more, more, more. More is not always better. Yeah. More is great. It's yeah. great to achieve. I'm very competitive. But at the end of the day, are you happy with yourself? Are you happy with things are are you happy with today? And yeah. I know as a leader, those are the things that you are worried about feeding into your people. Sure. Yeah. Um, so tell us, I really want to know, you didn't start out here. You didn't start out being handed your own business. You didn't start out with this great, you know, starting point in life. Mm -hmm. How did you get to be here? Wow. I mean, there's a long answer and there's a very short answer. You know, I think that, 
uh, I'll give a medium-sized answer. How okay, okay. And then I can ask more questions. Uh, so I grew up, as I mentioned, kind of in the ghetto. Uh, there were two qualities that you needed to develop in order to survive, literally, in Leewood 1 in A-Leaf, Texas. You either needed to learn how to fight or you needed to learn how to talk yourself out of any yep. situation. So I became the talker, right? Um, and, you know, as we know now, I mean, shoot, like, you know, there, there's engineers, there's scientists, there's all these STEM majors that are the builders. But it almost seems like the very, very successful Uber entrepreneurs are great marketers. They're great communicators, right? And so that was a very, very a valuable skill set that I developed at a very young age. Um, and so, you know, I was also smart, you know, I, I, I often, um, you know, compare myself to the movie Goodwill Hunting, right, where I think he was a construction worker, mm -hmm. but he was a genius because it just came natural. And, you know, it, it was one of those um, gifts that, you know, he really didn't ask for. And so he really didn't, you know, put in the hard work and the effort that he needed to, to, to put in in order to become monetarily successful in his career, right? Um, and so, you know, I made a lot of um, lazy, selfish decisions at a young age, you know, didn't finish college, uh, became the youngest uh, restaurant general manager of the year, I'm sorry, rookie of the year in the Pizza Hut uh, system whenever I was 21 years old, um, did that until I got fired, right, for taking shortcuts and the easy way out, um, and then ended up finding business-to-business -business sales, um, made $100,000 at 23 years old, working for a reseller of DirecTV and Dish Network, ended up getting fired from that job too. Uh, ended up got referred into an HR consulting firm where I did inside sales and lead generation. That was a lot of fun. And that exposed me to an industry where it was recurring revenue, right? And so imagine selling a bunch of direct TV, getting $20, $25 in commission per unit, but you might sell 10 a day, right? That's a pretty good day. Um, now going into an environment where you only might sell one or two deals a month, but that's yielding $10,000 a month in recurring revenue, right? $120,000 a year, my commission might be $12,000, not just $25, right? And so seeing that B2B would produce the highest return on my time investment, because I think when you're an individual contributor, that's really the most valuable asset is your time. Right. Um, so did that for about a year. Um, the bottom fell out of the economy in 2008. I ended up working for a recruiting firm for about a four month stint, you know, learn how to charge recruiting fees, uh, why somebody would buy supply and demand. Um, and then I ended up starting my own recruiting company when I was 25 years old and had four months of recruiting industry experience. And so it's funny, right? Whenever you talk to experienced professionals, they think they need five years, 10 years, 20 years before they have the confidence to go out and hang their own uh, shingle, right? Hey, if you're good and uh, you understand what your target market is and you have some technical competency in that space, the clients want people that can solve their problems. They don't give a shit if I went to Harvard. They don't care if I went to Yale, right? What's your fee and are you competent? I think that was one thing that I found out very early on. I was just better than the competition. Wow. I mean, 
it is really, truly amazing. And so if you don't give yourself enough kudos for that, I think to have the courage to do that at 25, kudos to you. I mean, truly, that is amazing. And I think you hinted at something that is so important that I also reflect on now as a more mature lady, uh, that sometimes what we don't know is the best thing of all. Like you don't, you you don't have the fear of failure because you don't know what you don't know and you just go and do. And I've seen that a lot now that I see people that go early and go hard (laughs) and they do amazing things because you don't have all of life experience, the jadedness to hold you back or make you feel like you're not good enough or that you have imposter syndrome. My husband was the same way. Yeah. When he decided that he wasn't going to be super successful playing baseball, he was going to be a baseball agent. And he went out, knocked on all these doors, got a job and was in the black right away. Mm -hmm. Also at 24, 25 Mm -hmm. years old, making money for the company, which Mm -hmm. is in being an, a sports agent is unheard of. Yeah. But because he had the confidence, like, I can do this. I see these other people doing it. What's special about that? That he just made it happen. And then yeah. you build up the skills along the way. And if we could remember that mm-hmm. as, I don't want to say middle age, but mature people. I am 39 I, <laughs> years old. Okay? I just I have 40. one year before I'm technically middle aged. Well, I like to think of middle age as really, it's like 55 now, right? Like I'm going to live to be 110. <laughs> so 55 is some years away. Yeah. But, you know, if we could help people see that and have the confidence, have the courage to do that now when they do have some experience mm-hmm. and even more skills to sell, mm-hmm. it would be amazing. Um, but Seriously, kudos to you for going out there and doing that. What made you want to start your own business? I mean, you know, other than seeing what the end game could be, right? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, really it was my, probably my ego um, and the fact that I didn't have a college degree. You know, if I was sitting there with an MBA or a mechanical engineering degree, you know, I could have been seemingly successful benchmarked against my peers just through work ethic and time. Right. Um, and and I since I didn't have that bachelor's degree, I knew that the only way that I could achieve my goals in life. Right. Whether it be being a millionaire before I was 30 or buying a Ferrari, a red Ferrari or, you know, buying one of those big custom houses that I would drive by every day on Kirby Drive. Right. These were all goals as a very young professional. I knew that I was going to be inhibit, inhibited in corporate America because I didn't have a degree, right? So that's what gave me the confidence to go out and start my own business at such a young age. Um, But I'll also give uh, my fiance at the time, we're divorced now, but we were married for over nine years. Uh, My ex-wife, she was a petroleum engineer, you know, six-figure earner whenever we got married. Um, Georgia Tech, dual major, chemical and biomedical engineering. She had a stable income, right? And actually encouraged me to take the leap of faith And if I'd started out slow, she said she got it, right? You know, I have it. We didn't have two mortgages yet. We didn't have three kids yet. You know, our fixed expenses were very manageable on her salary. Now, fortunately, that first year, there was some success, right? And then it was really in that second and third year that we really took off business-wise. Yeah. Well, that's great that you're very transparent about that. I also lead with that in, in my story is that, you know, I didn't have to be concerned about financials mm-hmm. to leave a lucrative career, to start my own business, 
to start the podcast or to lean into all the things that I'm, you know, passionate about. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also am quick to tell people, um, as a person from a really working class background, I will find a way and you can too. Yeah. So it does help that you have some stability and in income, mm-hmm. but for people that want to start a business or want to do something different, go to work for themselves, be in mm-hmm. consulting, whatever it may be, you can do that, you know, with the right plan, with the right tenacity, yeah. uh, and investing in yourself. It, people, you know, you see these memes. I don't know if you've seen them. I've seen them. I yeah. feel like maybe it's that uh, confirmation bias because it's in the back of my okay. head. I'm seeing it more. Yeah, yeah. But talking about, you know, you bought a new car, great. You bought a new house, great. You're going to college, you're investing in that, great. You're buying real estate, great. But if you invest in yourself Mm -hmm. as a person, whether it's taking a course to better some technical skill or starting a business, people always throw up a red flag like, what are you doing? This is risky. And (laughs) and really, it's like, why? If you can't bet on yourself, who's going to? Yeah. Who's going to have the courage to do that? You know, it's funny when you talk about investing in yourself and... You know, we we have a Vistage coach. I'm in the entrepreneurs organization. I have a business coach. I have a life coach and a therapist. Yes, right? I, I mean, love it. If, if if that's not the definition of willing to invest in yourself, I don't know what is right. But it's saying, hey, I might be strong in this technical competency, right? Building Boolean strings on LinkedIn, facilitating thirty minute job order intake calls with hiring managers, but. Anything that I've ever really done in life, whether it's hire a COO or invest in a new VP of sales, I haven't done it before. I was an entrepreneur when I was 25 years old. And by definition, I am not qualified for the job that I have today. Right. And so like surrounding yourself around people that are smarter, faster, more experienced and and they're not necessarily telling me what to do, but they're providing a forum to help me process my own thoughts and prioritize my initiatives. Right. And then what they're doing is they're helping me achieve my own goals that I've clearly outlined and defined. Right. And they're giving me the confidence to make decisions quicker. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's so important as a leader. And, uh, one of the traits that I figured out early on, um, with super successful people is they're not spending a lot of time on menial decisions. Mm -hmm. They make quick decisions. They are quick to understand the high points of Mm -hmm. what they need to know to make a decision. Um, And I think that is such a difference maker in going for good to great. Yeah, That's one thing that I struggle on personally that I have to remind myself all Mm -hmm. the time is like, what am I spending time on? Why am I doing too much research on something that's going to be, you know, let's call it a hundred dollar decision versus a hundred thousand dollar decision. And those are the difference makers. So the, the, the fact that you are building that, um, to help you grow is really important. And that, that is one of the pieces I think that is a huge. Yeah. Let me give you an analogy, right? Um, because don't get me wrong when you make quick decisions and you're impulsive like that and very risk tolerant, 10, 20% of the time you make the wrong decision, right? And so if we were to say like, you know, the tortoise and the hare or something like that, the race, if we say the the conservative steady eddy is going to walk 26.2 miles at a walker's pace, he's not really going to get super tired. His feet are not really going to start blistering maybe, um, but it's going to take him, I don't know, 
24 hours, <laughs> not, not literally, maybe six hours, five hours, right? But the person that sprints, sprints, quite often they're going to have to stop, put their hands on their, on their, on their knees because they're fully winded. They need to stop for a water break, maybe eat a banana to loosen up those muscles, right? But then they go right back to sprinting. That's the analogy that I'll utilize with regards to like the swift, quick decision making. There are some things that set them back, but in the long run, moving swiftly is very, very important to achieving your goals. You know, it's funny because we talked about risk tolerance and we talk about your husband or you went to law school you said right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and what does your husband do he's a sports agent is yep. he also an attorney though he's actually not oh okay yep. uh but it's funny because there's two types of people who i found that really aren't the best entrepreneurs and number one you know it's attorneys right they might really they might be good practitioners, right like a physician or something along those those lines but then also engineers as well. But when you look at how they are formally educated, attorneys have to look at everything that could go wrong. Yeah. Right. Engineers have to do front end failure analysis. They have to run models on everything that can go wrong. What is the commonality around sex successful entrepreneurs? What could go right? Yeah. Right. Optimism, glass half full, you know, we don't overanalyze the 50, 60 things that could go wrong. We're almost overly confident in our skills and capabilities, right? And that's why it's important to have a CFO or a COO or a GC that can keep us grounded. Otherwise, the the visionaries are just floating in outer space because we're on cloud nine all the time, right? But um, I think that's one thing for uh, maybe early career people that are considering maybe, do I want to go get that engineering degree? Do I want to go to law school, Right. I would much rather encourage those individuals to start consuming content that can create a very positive abundance mindset to increase their risk tolerance that can mitigate the fear that they have and then just have them jump into the deep end, right? Yeah. Because what's harder to do? Quit your job where you were making half a million dollars a year as a W-2 employee for your last employer or quitting that 65K job, right? Yep. Yeah. What's it, harder to do? I would be willing to say it's the 500K job to, because you're already successful by 99% of society's standards. No, and and I really do. I it, It's one of the most proud things because by nature, I'm not a risk tolerant person. I'm not a big risk taker. I am more of a steady Eddie. But when you realize that there is something missing and you want to do something else, Mm -hmm. you have to make a change. You have to see what is holding you back. And that's what I realized for myself. And I I joke and call it, I didn't have golden handcuffs, right? I wasn't a a seven-figure person, Mm -hmm. but I had like silver handcuffs. You know, it was enough money that you look around and you're like, oh my God, what am I doing? Why am I letting this go? But at the end of the day, when you know that you can do more, and as you started off, talking about, you know, being a recruiter mm-hmm. and being an individual contributor, your time is what you're making. Mm-hmm. It's the same if you're a lawyer, uh, if you're any kind of, you know, employee, Service really. provider. Yes, yeah. all of it. Mm-hmm. If you want to scale and see a bigger end game, 
you have to build something else. Mm-hmm. You have to build something more. And mm-hmm. that's what I really realized. Uh, and then I attribute some of the ways that my former employer, uh, which is a French oil and gas company, that, you know, the way they looked at stuff, right? France doesn't necessarily have a huge reserve of oil and gas, but yet they started one of the top oil and gas companies. Yeah. That's pretty entrepreneurial. That's pretty outside the box. So some of the things that I learned while working there, um, I really attribute to giving myself that ability you know, coming from a working class background, you don't, you're just not around entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. You don't see that. And so, yes, when people come to me and ask me about going to get a master's, going to law school, doing these other things, I am quick to tell them, like, really think about what is your end goal. If you want it as a building block, if you want it mm-hmm. to teach you the way to think about, you know, the world in a different way, it can be really useful. If you want to build a business and be working for yourself and in uh, and creating something, maybe you don't need that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Why waste the time? Mm-hmm. You know, there's an opportunity cost to everything. So I also really wanted to know how, you know, you built a successful business. You jumped up pretty quickly in revenue and building and growing the business. How did you then take it from a multiple, you know, million dollar revenue mm-hmm. to building it to $10 million in revenue. Mm -hmm. I mean, because that's, you know, the early phases aren't easy. I don't want to pretend like that's easy. It's not. They've got other challenges. That was was the hardest thing to do was was building it to a million. It took me six years to hit a million dollars in revenue. Six years. And at that, how many employees did you have? Now we do a million dollars a month, right? Isn't that funny that, that, that... I well, mean, that's scaling, everybody. Right? That's scaling. You know, when I did a million, I probably had five employees okay. plus me. Um, and, you know, last year we had 31 employees and did $10.83 million in revenue. And so, you know, when you look at the revenue per person, right, that number's skyrocketed from, you know, uh, $200,000 revenue per person to $350,000 in revenue per person. Right. Um, and, and it's just continually top grading, getting better talent, right. Getting better clients, getting more acute with the, with the types of job orders that we wanted to work on. What was our unique selling point? What's our mission? What's our vision? What are our values? Are we quick to, to, are we quick to fire clients that violate those values? Are we quick to hire, or I'm sorry, fire people that, uh, you know, our own internal employees that violate the values. I think that that was critically important to our growth, growth and success is having clarity around that mission, vision, and values. And then once you know the road that you need to take and the destination of where we're going, then it's just a matter of pouring fuel into the into the gas tank, right? Uh, and how fast can we get there, right? But in the beginning, you don't even really know, right? Like, which road are we going to take? Where are we going? Well, I don't know. We're going to go wherever the market tells us to go. But when you have clarity around that, then you can eliminate the white noise and really focus, right? So you may say, today, how long have you had your business? Uh, it's been about two and a half years. Two and a half years, right? And I rem- I'm just going back to my two and a half year mark. And so, you know, I don't, I don't really know your business intimately well. I'm familiar with the property and casualty insurance space, but, you know, right now you're probably taking referrals, right? If I have a $10 million construction company or a hundred million dollar transportation company or a 20 person law firm, 
I'm willing to take that leap. But when you have clarity around for us, it was like about the seven year mark where we said, and I'm just going to use an analogy to translate to your business. I only work with construction companies that do over 50 million in revenue, right? Yep. When you have that amount of clarity, you can get very acute with your branding, your marketing, your digital presence, what events you go to, your commentary on your podcast, your paid advertising on your pay-per-click ads, the people that you hire that have definitive relationships in that space, what's that going to do for your business? If you only focused on construction companies over $50 million a year in revenue, what could that do? Yeah, I mean, you would have the ability to get really deep, really skilled, really technical, and then you can leverage your time better because you aren't chasing your tail around the entire earth. You're not just taking what falls into your lap, right? And you know this is profitable. And when you start to have those same conversations and you intimately know your client's problems, that's whenever you become a true resource and value added problem solver, not just an insurance carrier, right? Or an insurance um, commodity person, right? Well, that, and that's what I always, when people do ask me about law school and what, you know, value that brought, you know, it really taught me to ask the right questions. And that is where it's a huge difference maker in being that um, advisor and that partner, not just a commodity and a service provider, Mm -hmm. you are going deeper because you ask the right questions to understand. You know, I take my clients and I know you do this as well and I will help them find other resources if Mm -hmm. I have connections. Just going that one extra step, but you have to understand what they're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Um, And like you said, when you're in a certain marketplace regularly, it's easier for you to just understand what the leadership is dealing with Mm -hmm. because you've seen it over and over and over. Most of the problems that business owners have, especially in the mid-market space, are not unique. Everybody have the same problems, including me. So it's easy to understand that, but you also have to ask the right questions, um, which is really important. And I know you guys do that really well with your clients. Mm -hmm. So as you grew into this, how... What were the challenges you experienced with being a leader and kind of figuring out how to lead an organization and not just you and one or two people? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that I'm still in the process of learning how to be a leader, right? Um, You know, one of the things that I personally did was I identified, you know, three things, right? What are the things that I am great at, right? And then breaking that up into, into two different areas that I love to do great at and love to do. I'm going to focus on that. What are the things I'm great at that I don't really like to do? Okay, let me hire someone to do that. I think as solo entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, we tend to just do everything that we're great at, right? But, you know, I might be the best financial analyst in the business. I might be the best at, um, you know, doing data analysis on, you know, certain things. But if if I don't really enjoy it and it's not a money-making activity, then I can train somebody else to be great at it, right? And then the third thing is, what are the things that I'm not great at that need to be done, right? And so those are the things that were critical to our success in me becoming a great leader is I went out and found people that were better than me in this one specific area, right? And instead of trying to hire people that 
you know, ran a 360 desk is what they call it in my industry or people that were fully sustained entrepreneurs that could generate their own leads, that can have client relationships, that can find candidates that were also technology savvy. I decided that I was going to break up our delivery team into four different areas. And what that did was um, it allowed people to become experts at one specific function, right? And so I'll just use an example. A really good business development person is a completely different personality profile than a really good account manager, right? One requires fearlessness, quick start, the ability to twist arms, the, the, the ability to generate leads through cold calling. That's what a good business development person does, right? Now, obviously, there's relationship salespeople. Those are called solution sellers, right? But then a great account manager has really strong follow-through, great problem-solving skills, great relationship building skills, but they're not going to pick up the phone and make 500 cold calls a week. So how can we separate that into two different functions and put the people in the right seat on the bus to where the account managers couldn't do it without the business development people and the business development people couldn't do it without the account managers. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And so putting people in in a role where they could naturally excel, and then what that did was that increased productivity and profitability because they didn't have to like slow down and turn this off in order to try to barrel through what they thought was tough work. Right. Um, and then that increased profitability and productivity and it created stickiness with our clients because their relationship wasn't really just with one person. It was, it was with the whole client delivery person, the business development person, the account manager, the recruiter, and the executive over that business unit. The clients are more sticky. And more importantly, the employees are more sticky because they can't go out and start their own practice because they've been spoon-fed all of these resources and tools and people around them. But even more important, they're happy because they're working in their zone of genius and they probably don't want to leave. Yeah. You know, when you when you have people working on what they're really good at and they enjoy doing. Yeah. So if, if you're forcing somebody to do cold calls that doesn't like it, or you're forcing somebody that's a real people out there, you know, social networker to do all this paperwork, mm, follow exactly. up, they're going to be unhappy yeah. doing those things anyway. So when when you allow people these opportunities to really focus in on what, what they're good at and what mm -hmm. they love, um, then they're, you know, just yeah, really they become raving fans of the organization and they're excited to come to work on Monday, right? It's not something where they're like, you know, watching the clock, can't wait till it turns five o'clock, right? Um, and it doesn't mean that, okay, if you're not a great cold caller, you can't be a good business development person, right? Because there's different ways that you can generate leads. Some of the best BD people in the world are digital marketers that have never made a cold call in their entire life. Can they generate leads, right? Of course. But they've got a skill set that 95% of the world doesn't have. And I think that that's very important to become successful at whatever you want is figure out what organically comes very natural to you and sell it to someone who has a lot of money, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Because because the time value analysis becomes different. If, if like our core demographics as a recruiting firm are we sell to law firms and we sell to wealth management firms. Those are two areas where they've got a lot of meat on the bone. They would rather have a great employee and pay them whatever it takes to get them as opposed to 
I'm just going to pick on, I don't know, a manufacturing company that they may be more motivated by, hey, our ceiling is 80K for this person. Well, why? This this guy could do the job of two people. He's only 100. Your labor yield's going to be much higher. Ah, well, we have three other manufacturing people and they get paid 80K. So we're just going to pay him on time and grade, not on his actual talent level. Isn't that unbelievable I, it, to it, see but how you see that a lot. think? Yeah. You, you see that a lot. And, and, and I think in Houston, where the job market has remained pretty strong, mm-hmm. um, I don't know how those people get by, to be honest, yeah. because there are a lot. It, one of the things I love to talk about is transferable skills. Mm-hmm. And so when you're in a job market where there's transferable skills and there are industries that you can move to, you cannot stick by this, well, that's what we pay so-and-so. That's, I mean, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. Yes, you need to pay quality. And you know, at yeah. the end of the day, the turnover is going to cost you anyway. So get the right person. Yeah, well, it's it's funny because... I don't think that it's a good recipe for success to just go out and have a bunch of A players, right? And the reason why is because you got to look at your A player as like the home run hitter on a baseball team, mm-hmm. right? We can't go give everybody a $40 million a year contract. It's just not feasible. You have to have your role players, your B players, the steady eddies that show up on time, right, and get the job done. But if you have all A players, I mean, it's embarrassing to admit, but it's like when that promotion becomes available, right, there has to be a clear definitive standout between, you know, one and, and one A, right? Yeah. If everybody is a stud, you're going to be letting some people down, right? Because there's only one opportunity to get that promotion. And so I do think that that business is founded on a lot of those B players, to be quite honest, the ones that breathe the core values, but they're not overly great innovators, or creators, right? Because there's only a finite number of roster spots of those people that we could have on the team. Yeah, you got to you got to keep the pyramid for a yeah. reason, right? You can't, <laughs> exactly. You can't have and and, yeah, and yeah. Uh, I I also formerly worked at a company where it was more the top heavy, like, and it was just a very competitive environment. I mean, you just had people running and gunning at the same time. When you do have that, you have turnover too. So turnover comes both ways because when you don't get the promotion and you feel that you're the top person, you're probably going to start looking for another job. You know, it's funny because I've been recruiting in oil field services for many, many years and your big French company has been a great source of ours. uh, I'll tell you because they do have high expectations with regards to quality and service and educational requirements. Right. And if that guy doesn't get the promotion to the senior VP of Cameron, right, after the acquisition, well, hey, guess what? He's going to go be the senior VP at Neighbors, you know, and that's perfectly okay because the system runs the company and the people in an enterprise level organization keep the system going. It's really in the small to mid-sized space where an individual contributor can create huge ripple effects in the organization. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. It's a, it's a lot different when you're talking about small and mid-sized business than you're talking about, you know, the large or extra large because some carriers, it's funny, you always think of yeah. small, mid and large. Well, in, in the insurance space, some carriers give you four categories yeah. and you have the extra large, like the majors, you know, a Walmart yeah, or whatever. Sure. Um, 
a lot of people, you know, yeah, because just, a large company could be 10,000 employees. Yeah. Well, guess what? Amazon has 480,000 yep. employees. They're not, not in the same category <laughs> as pros software. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on that, you know, one of the things we kind of dance around a little bit is, you know, what's important in your business is networking. What I think is really fascinating and I'd love to get your feedback on is how do you see challenges? Um, there's so much benefit, right? The, the internet technology has democratized to some degree the ability to learn and grow outside the boundaries of like where you and I grew up. You see what other people have. You see what other people yep. are doing, even if you weren't in that bubble. At the same time, there are challenges to all of technology and you know, people being stuck behind a desk, stuck behind their phone, you're, you're, you really thrive on networking. How do you see Gen Z and millennials challenged for networking? What, and what can they do, you know, to kind of push themselves more out there because your net, your network is your net worth. I totally and utterly believe that. And I wish I had known that sooner. Um, but you have really you sure. know, nailed so- that. So that's a great question, and I don't think I'm going to give you the answer that you want to hear. So what are the purposes of networking? It's to build three things, to build trust, to build rapport, and to establish credibility, right? That's what I believe. That's the purpose of networking. And so in the old days, I needed to shake a lot of hands. I needed to develop some level of intimacy with the person across the table on being open, vulnerable, inquisitive, all those things that it took in order to build trust and rapport. Right. And then I needed to answer questions or know the right people in their space or or uh, at least have the right client base to establish, hey, we are credible in this in the space where I'm telling you that that I deserve business referrals. Right. So that was that was the long answer of how we did networking in the past. How we do networking today is very, very different. And I think that we're in this shift of the people on the other side of the table who are the decision makers, right? If I'm still selling to an industry where it might be Gen X, older millennials, or even baby boomers that are the ones making the decision of the vendor that we want to utilize, I have to utilize the old school strategies to to build trust, build rapport, and establish credibility. But when you look at selling into arenas where it is the younger millennials and the Gen Z who are making the decision, they are they're building trust and developing rapport through social networking. I'm not, I'm literally not kidding. Whenever I started an Instagram in January of 2019, I had zero followers, right? And I utilized the same strategies that I utilized in order to build my LinkedIn network to over 45,000 followers to build my Instagram presence. And whether people had known me Right. Whether people had ever met me in Houston, if they followed my social media persona, the restaurants that I went to, the bottle service that I paid for, the people that I posted who were credible in their spaces, it developed a narrative in their mind to say, hey, this guy is well respected. He's well networked. He's obviously very successful because of the types of things that he's spending his money on. Right. To where 
that was an effective networking strategy from a social development standpoint on what I was trying to accomplish whenever I was a single guy, even though I'd never shaken these people's hand one time in my entire life. But that was effective networking because I was building trust, rapport, and establishing credibility. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, I love that. that's a B2C sell. Mm-hmm. In a B2B environment, I think that we could still establish it in the very same way. It's probably different channels. So instead of Instagram, it might be on LinkedIn, right? Or it might be um, through other mediums on how that industry consumes content, whether it be through trade shows or or things of that nature. But I think as long as those things are three things are being accomplished that that can be an effective networking strategy. So for people that may be listening on the younger end of the spectrum looking to grow in whatever industry they their chosen profession is in, do you think that LinkedIn is even more important than ever? Do you think it's still growing and there's a lot of value there? Um, I mean, I know you've been on LinkedIn mm-hmm. since probably at the very beginning or close to it. Yeah. But how, you know, if, if we can build up our networking and our presence in the way, um, obviously LinkedIn is much different than Instagram, but do you think that that really is a place that people should be spending time regardless of industry and personal branding? So I would, I would say that the answer is no. And I think that it's very important to understand who is the person that you're trying to establish trust, rapport, and credibility with. Because if I'm selling custom closets, right? It may not be wise for me to produce that content on LinkedIn, right? But it might be wise to pay, I don't know, JJ Watt to give him a free closet for $50,000 to say, will you, can we do a walkthrough of the closet whenever it's built? And then you post it on your social media, right? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, shit. If, if this closet company is good enough for JJ Watt in the city of Houston, well, they must be the best because he can afford to use anybody. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think that it's really just important to understand what is the product or service that you're selling? Who are the target demographics of the people that you want to sell to? And then what resources and strategies should I utilize in order to build trust, rapport and credibility? And so for me, I have a B2B sell, right? I don't sell custom closets. We are a direct hire search firm for companies in the energy, industrial, manufacturing, and technology space, right? When I look at the decision makers, the VPs of HR, the directors of talent acquisition, and then still sometimes the decision is made by the VP of operations, COO, executive VP, et cetera, those folks in a B2B environment are on LinkedIn. So it's important for me to establish credibility, build trust, and rapport on there. Does that make sense? Yeah. For you, property and casualty insurance, those individuals are on LinkedIn. TikTok, they may not be there, but I'll tell you five years when all the 21-year-olds are now 26, and if they were good, because we we know they're very impatient because of instant gratification, those 26-year-olds that are A players are going to be the VPs of administration and the directors of HR that are the decision makers for you. So it's very, very important for you to get on the forefront to start establishing credibility while they're 20, 21 years old. Yeah, well, and that and that's what I have found as being a, a late to life Instagram person, <laughs> having only just recently got on there is that, you know, in the video module, there's a lot. Now, I don't, I talk about it more in the context of um, building yourself up, figuring out where you want to go in the context of get clear, 
podcast and not necessarily on my technical insurance skills. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you, I can sum up what I'm talking about on LinkedIn in 30 second reel on yeah. Instagram if I wanted it to be focused on insurance or if I thought there was a marketplace on insurance. So I really do think that the value of video marketing and self-branding, because you just, your vibrancy comes out in a way that can't necessarily come out in words. And really until I got on there, I probably would not have realized what a resource that could be for people. So to your point, if your buyers are on Instagram or TikTok, you can leverage that. And honestly, it might be even more quick, you know, to pull out your phone and record yourself and, you know, creating a, essentially yeah. a mini article. Yeah, you That's what you're writing on. By analysis. Yeah. And then when you look at people's learning styles as well, right, with a video, you've got visual, you've got auditory, and you've got kinesthetic, right? If they're jumping to certain areas. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's so funny, like, you know, I, okay, I, I, I've started to produce short uh, reels to to LinkedIn, right? The other day I was going to lunch at a restaurant here in town and there was a guy walking about, I don't know, 40 feet in front of us. And then I saw him just stop and he waited by the door. And when I walked up, he goes, you're Jeremy Jensen, right? And I said, yeah. He goes, I follow you on LinkedIn. We've never met. Um, but I just want to say, I, I really like your videos. I could have asked that guy, what was your favorite video? And he would have no idea. He just knows I come up in his feed all the time. So surely I must be good at what I do, right? I'm a recruiter. He knew that. So if he was at the round table at his company in a board meeting and they're saying, hey, look, we need to confidentially replace our director of human resources. Does anybody know a good recruiter? That gentleman might have raised his hand just because of familiarity, right? Right. There was rapport. There was credibility. Maybe trust hadn't been built yet, but he was at least willing to have the conversation and vouch for me. Right. And so I think that as we look at lead generation strategies and how do we develop our brand and position ourselves, it's very, very important to recognize that we need to be consistent about producing content in a multi-channel medium. Right. Videos, texts. Um, showing up in person at events, not just dominating one specific medium. Do you encourage your employees to um, be present and create content like that as well for their own personal branding, for their, you know, improved engagement with Mm -hmm. clients? Um, Or do you just lead by example? Do you guys talk about that here? Yeah, so it's it's honestly, uh, my employees don't like uh, posting to LinkedIn, uh, especially videos. And I think it's because, you know, a a good lead for us is an employer that's willing to spend a $50,000 recruiting fee to find a new VP of sales for their recently private equity funded technology company. All right. That's a huge fee, $50,000. And so whenever they retain our services, we're looking for something very, very acute. They may say it needs to be a female who's led sales teams of six to 15 that understands AI, digital transformation, that went to a public university, that worked her way through college, and she's single with no kids. I mean, that's that's the extent of what a client will tell us of what they need. So what our recruiters do on a daily basis is they build a definitive candidate pool of, let's say, anywhere from 30 to 50 people, and then they cold call, cold text, 
cold DM, cold Facebook message these people to try to just say, hey, look, let me tell you about an opportunity. But whenever they post to LinkedIn, they get so many people that say, I'm looking for a job. I'm looking for a job. I'm looking for a job. And so unfortunately, they're almost scared to post to LinkedIn because they think that it's going to bog them down and pull them into the weeds. And then they just want to focus on calling those 30 to 50 people. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so it's kind of a catch 22 because when you are seen by a lot of people, you will get engagement. And so it's very, very important to where you have a clear messaging on what it is that you do to where you say, Hey, I focus on companies that have 20 million in revenues and above that are construction companies or transportation companies or robotics companies, manufacturing companies that have very, very high premium, right? Because then you're not just the one-stop shop person for everyone, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So there is an aversion that they have to putting their face on video. To be quite honest, I used to have the same aversion, Um, you know, maybe because my skin wasn't as clear as I would like it to be. Maybe because I wasn't at the weight that I was whenever I was in college and I didn't like the way that I looked on camera. Right. Well, what happened was somebody brought me on their podcast, posted me. And I ended up getting all these words of affirmation. Oh, Jeremy is so smart. Can I reshare? Oh, wow. They're not saying that I'm fat. They're not saying that I have acne, right? And so I quickly found out that, you know, hey, look, if if, if maybe you're not the best version of yourself, that's okay, right? But it's about consistency. It's about volume. It's about the quality of the content. And maybe 10% of people self-select out because you didn't record in 1080p, right? But the whole 90% that stay around, that consume your content twice a week, three times a week, once a day, those people develop a very, very deep relationship with your your networking persona. Yeah. And, and I think it can have, uh, that's probably what held me back from Instagram for so long is I just didn't want my face to be out there in that okay. way. It really was. I, I had this. You've got one. a great face. What are you talking <laughs> well, thank about? Thank you. Thank you. It w- I had this fear that like, you know, you're going to grow into this influencer type space. And I don't know how I'd feel if somebody walked up to me at a restaurant, like you said, and recognized me. That's my kind of fear. But I realized that in my purpose and my passion and helping people and getting to the core of what they and sharing my experience and um, my belief and what other people can do, um, you do need to have that personal connectivity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I will attribute that seeing your content to a large degree oh, really? is what oh. really made me think, okay, maybe I should do some more video. Yeah. Maybe I should step out there a little bit um, and just ignore if there's any naysayers. Because at the end of the day, it's about what is going to help you get to where you're going. There are going to be naysayers. There are going to be people that have something negative to come back, no matter how perfect things are, no matter how great your content is, no matter what you're doing, there's always going to be negative people in there. And to get to a great place, to a level of success, to achieve whatever you want to achieve, we, we have to be able to turn blinders on to that mm-hmm. um, and, and build a little bit of a tough Look skin. Look at the most successful people in the world. I mean, Elon Musk has a lot of haters. <laughs> of haters. Jeff Bezos, right? That's right. Uh, Everybody. You know, Bill Gates might have far fewer than them, but I guarantee you there's some haters there. Yeah. 
Excellent. Well, I'm glad that you're doing it now because it's good content. Yeah. Well, I have so appreciated everything that you shared with us. I just have a few more questions that I kind of wanted to go through um, to help people. If they are feeling stuck right now, what do you think has helped you stay motivated um, to propel yourself forward for all of these years? Hmm. So I think that we go through seasons of life on things that we prioritize. Um, you know, I know very early in my career, you know, I was so focused on buying the house that I wanted, the cars that I wanted. I got married. I, I had three kids, right? There were all these milestones and I poured a lot of time and attention on that, right? And then in the next season of life, I was building my business, right? Um, and okay, I got to hire a VP of operations. I got to hire a director of sales. I've got to top grade these individual contributors. I need a new office. I need this. And whenever I look at, you know, the last three years, you know, kind of like post-divorce, taking a look in the mirror and realizing, holy shit, like on the surface, I, I, I should be the happiest person in the world. I've, I've achieved my business goals, my income goals, beautiful wife, three children, great house in the suburbs. Why am I unhappy, right? And so one of the resources that was very, very important for me to secure in January of 2021 was I hired an executive life coach of somebody that I visit with once a week. And then for about an hour and a half, we just go deep, right? There's about 12 different facets of life that we look like. And in the beginning, it was a lot of like discovery, what's important to you? Why is it important? Because, you know, if let's say spirituality is certainly one of the the 12 components of life, but on an importance level, it may only be a two or a three, then okay, we can push that to the side. That may evolve into a six or a seven at a later date, right? But it was, okay, how am I as a father? How am I as a son, a spouse, a leader, a learner, a creator, right? An investor, all these different facets. And then really being very, very intentional about, okay, this week we're going to tackle this, right? And then developing a, a plan to create swift, meaningful action. So I'll just give a, a brief analogy. If Okay, whenever I first started working with my coach, I I really shored up my relationship with my ex-wife, and it's better than it's ever been. Then I focus on my relationship with my brother, then my mom, then my COO, then my employees, all these things. And so finally it gets around to health. Well, I can't I can't go do CrossFit. Why? Well, because I have a torn ACL and I have a torn labrum. Okay, well. Schedule the appointment. You need to have surgery. If you're telling me your goal is to live a fitness-centered life and to lose 65 pounds, and that's holding you back from achieving your goal, then you need to do it right now. So my executive life coach was basically my accountability partner. He's he's much younger than me. I'm 39. He's probably 31, 32 years old. Um, but he provides structure empathy. He's, he's inquisitive. He's an immaculate note taker. And he checks in on me every other day to make sure that I am doing every single thing that we planned out to do. He's the accountability partner that I needed to achieve my own vision. I didn't need someone else telling me what to do. It needed to be my idea. So I think that that was very, very critical for me to achieve my success. That's amazing. And I would share that 
for a lot of professionals, a coach like this could be extremely useful. I also work with a coach. But I'll also say, if you feel like that is not in the financial budget, you can grab a friend. I'm sure you know somebody. I have been that friend for many people. Um, (laughs) You have to hear the hard things sometimes and people don't always want to hear it. That's the problem. But if you really want to grow, you have to be prepared to hear the hard things. What is holding you back? Jeremy, is it your fault that you cannot do and achieve your fitness goals because you are not taking care of the actual problem? Go take care of it. Sometimes people don't want to hear it, that you have made decisions that are not aligning with your goals. Mm -hmm. If you want to achieve them, sometimes it's just easier to have the excuses. And a coach or an accountability partner, a good one, is going to push you out of there and say, here's a mirror. This is where you're going wrong. And we, I think we all need that. You look, nobody here is Jesus, right? Nobody here is perfect. Then we all can improve on things. And that's what a life coach can do. But I do think there's also resources for people that may not find. um, And then there's executive coaches in all Mm -hmm. budgets of life. Um, But I, I, I strongly agree with that. Um, The last question I wanted to ask and just kind of touch on is, you know, another thing that we hear about with leadership, entrepreneurship, uh, business owners is, having the time to do it all. How have you been able to reprioritize to have the balanced life um, that you want? And it may not always be imbalanced. So sometimes Mm -hmm. that's a tricky word to use, but um, you know what I mean? Absolutely. So whenever I was building, right, um, you know, I was the one that was doing it all, you know, working 70 hours a week, you know, checking my emails at 8, 30, 9 o'clock at night, whenever I probably should have been giving my kids a bath and tucking them in and reading them a book, right? And so it really caused a lot of stress on my life at home because I was, you know, frankly spending, you know, far too much time building my business, right? And so once I had the disposable income to invest in, okay, I need an internal recruitment manager. I need an operations manager. I need a marketing director. I need a chief operating officer. What what really gave me that work-life balance that equated to the level of happiness that I've secured today is delegating and elevating was very, very important, right? Um, knowing that, hey, look, if, if these folks can only do it 80% to the ability that I could do it if I did it myself, but I have 10 people, that's 80% times 10, that's 800%. I can only ever give 100%. Does that make sense? Yeah. So like, it's like, okay, if my, if my work is at 95, well, that means 5% is only being, you know, devoted to personal. Right. And so like, it was a matter of which levers do I pull because I'm only one person. And so delegating and elevating was very, very important. One of the challenges that it's posed is when you've reached my level of financial security and I'm used to just buying what I want. Oh, we need more sales. Let me go buy three salespeople. <laughs> right? In your relationships at home, you can't do that. Yep. You can't just, oh, well, here's a Louis Vuitton bag. We're good now, right? No, it requires intentionality around seeking to understand, having empathy, giving them a very safe place to voice their concerns, being coachable, right? Those are the characteristics that equates to success, I think, in your your personal relationships. Yeah. And I will add to that, that, you know, being um, a type A, um, you know, working mom, having a super type A, busy husband running his own business, um, it's not about the time you're spending. 
It is about the level of connection and the ability to really be present in that time that I think is the most influential part. I mean, my love language is definitely quality time, Mm -hmm. but I don't need to see somebody every night for two hours. And that's not realistic. We have to be realistic on what our goals are, but it's even if you're having a 30 minutes or sometimes my husband and I will go get coffee after we drop off the kids and sit in the car, sipping our coffee for 25 minutes before he goes to the office and I go to my office and we will download for the day or, you know, just have a 15 minute snuggle and chat at the end of the day. It doesn't have to be this overwhelming thing. Is that a synonym for something? (laughs) Snuggle. Yes. I mean, no, no. He, he is a, I'm not a super touchy person. He likes to hug and be snuggly. Oh my God. So is my husband. I had to really learn. I'm like, I I gave, I gave all my snuggles away to the kids, man. I'm out, but you know, you got to save something for your spouse. (laughs) And it's something that's so important to me because no matter how great our relationship is, that's always something I love to talk to people about because I also feel like I can always improve. We can always do better. What are other people doing? What have I learned in all these years that I could share with other people? Because at the end of the day, we are made for connection. We are made for community. And whether that is you have a spouse or not, you need a community around you. Um, And that's really important part. And when we forget about that, and we have laser focus on our business, that can be to the detriment of our health and our long-term wellness. Um, So I just really important to me. Um, and I always love to hear about how other people have um, kind of chewed into that, mm-hmm. especially if you hit some road bumps along the way. Um, so the last question I would have for you is, if you had a friend that called you today and said, Jeremy, I'm not happy with my career, you know, what is the 30 second mentorship that you would give them to get them kind of, you know, straight on you know, realigned with life and looking at where they want to go and how to um, find ultimate happiness and uh, satisfaction? Well, I'm not in the business of finding ultimate happiness and satisfaction for people. Uh, I'm not a performance coach or a mindset coach. I'm a headhunter, right? And so I like to find people that are really, really good at their job and poach them from their from our client's competitor and bring them to do the same exact job uh, at our client, right? So that's what I'm an expert in. But I'll give you an example of something that was brought up to me this morning. So I'm in a group chat uh, with the Entrepreneurs Organization and somebody said, hey, look, a friend of mine, she's been at uh, Invesco for 23 years. She just got laid off this morning. She's distraught. She doesn't even know the first place to look. And so I'll give that advice if you don't mind. Yeah. So what I told her was I said, the first thing that you need to do is you need to go through your LinkedIn messages. And if you don't have a LinkedIn, you need to create one. Um, But you need to go through all the messages that you've gotten over the last two years. Because if recruiters were reaching out to you, it means one of two things. It means they have clients in your space, right? And they recruit for people like you, right? So like I get referrals all the time from people looking for opportunities, but it's like, yeah, we don't really recruit for staff accountants. We might only get, you know, two of those searches a year or HR managers or, you know, XYZ. Oh, are they a partner level attorney with a $3 million book of business? Yeah, refer that to me. We got it, right? Um, But the point that I'm making is, 
Go to the people that have reached out to you in the last three years. Start engaging with them. Don't be embarrassed that it's been nine months since they messaged you and you haven't even logged into LinkedIn. Say, hey, my apologies. I was gainfully employed at the time. My situation has changed. Is your client still hiring? I would love to talk to him about this opportunity. Obviously, that job has been closed, most likely, if it's been nine months, but their client should still be their client. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. So that's number one. Number two, you need to reach out to everybody that can vouch for your work ethic and technical competency, right? And so usually it's former coworkers, former bosses, former direct reports, and then you need to phone call them or text message them. Email is going to get ignored. Everybody that gets an email First thing that they assume is this is a mass message. That's just the way that we're wired nowadays, right? This is a mass message. Hey, I'm currently looking for an opportunity. If you know of anything, please let me know. No, if I get a call from anybody that I used to work with, and then they follow up with a text message because I didn't answer, and they say, hey, you know, it's been a while. I'm not sure if you've heard yet. Invesco just did a round of layoffs last week. Unfortunately, I was a casualty, wanted to get you on the phone. I see that you are at Superior Energy Services, and I would love to talk to you to see how you're liking it over there and just catch up. What's the probability I'm going to ghost that person? Does that make sense? It was yeah. a phone call and a text. And so networking with people that you can that can vouch for you. So instead of posting to LinkedIn or... Um, sending an email blast or something to that effect, being very, very intentional about navigating with that close network. It might only be 10 people, but if you spend meaningful time with every one of those 10 people, they all should create another two or three different tree limbs for you to navigate down. Does that make sense? Absolutely. All right. No, I think that that is a practical, such a practical tip and something I'm going to slot in some of the information that I have for people too. I love that. Um, I honestly would not have thought about that, but I get recruiter calls all the time. So, or on LinkedIn, people yeah. are messaging me. Um, so that, that and is you're not such, looking until you are. Right. About that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that is incredible. Um, and I just wouldn't have thought of that. So that's awesome. I love everything that you shared. I love everything you're doing. I mean, I just think, you know, you are a business case study. You are someone that could go and just teach an entrepreneurship class. And there's just so much um, that people can learn from you. So I will share all of your LinkedIn, your Instagram, all your, you know, website, everything. Um, is there anything else you would want people to know? Do you have any projects coming up? Anything um, else that you would want to promote no, or well, know about? You know, we're we're launching our own podcast here at Encore Search Partners, and it's going to be called the Path to Success. Right, where I interview people in person here in Houston that are successful in whatever the field that they're in. They might be an Olympic athlete. They might be a corporate executive, an entrepreneur, an amazing teacher, teacher of the year, three out of the last four years. But I want to develop develops deep, meaningful connections with people that are successful because I want to increase my social circle, right? Because there comes a point in time whenever you're wealth building to where the money isn't really the most important thing anymore. It's about the relationships. And I think that I'm probably going through a midlife crisis <laughs> to where that's really where my effort is at right now is the relationships. 
Yeah. So the path to success, keep an eye out. I, I can't wait to hear about it. And I know that I have several people that I would be happy to connect you with on there because that is what it's all about. Yeah. People, it's connecting. If you don't spend time connecting, then you're going to stay stuck. You got to get out of your box. You got to get out there. Believe me, I was in Jeremy's LinkedIn inbox multiple times, finding connections, saying, this guy is so interesting. This guy has so much to offer. We've got to talk to him and, you know, don't take no for an answer. Get out there and do it. Not that you told me no, but <laughs> when people do, I'm not afraid to keep going. Yeah. That are the difference maker that people have to see if you're successful, just like you. I'm sure you had no's along the way. You keep going, you build the relationship, you find ways to connect, you find ways to network. Um, and that, you know, perseverance is going to get you successful. So thank you so much. There's so much clarity that you've brought to the audience um, and your time has been a blessing. I can't wait um, to talk to you more and see your continued success. Thanks. All right. Thanks so much, everybody. Thanks for listening in. If you loved what you heard, it would mean so much to me if you shared it with your friends. Tag us on social media so we can give you a big shout out. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you want more, head on over to the website where you can learn all about what we do to serve and support our entire community. Until next time, keep dreaming big and getting clear. You are made for more. So start living like it today.